This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 149. And the quote of the day is from Phil Collins, who said, In learning, you will teach, and in teaching, you will learn. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I hope you had a great couple of weeks. I haven't talked to you for a little while. I am, uh, I'm currently in Florida, but just finishing up some time at, uh, at the NAM conference, and I was out there a little early because I spent some time at Drum Channel and then went back to NAM or went to NAM and then back to Drum Channel for a little while. So some great stuff coming um, from Drum Channel and some really cool stuff that happened at NAM and uh, got to hang out with some cool cats. Uh, if you check out some of the stuff on Snapchat or Instagram at Drummer's Resource, uh, you can see some of the pics from that, and there'll, there'll also be some stuff uh, that I'll be talking about moving forward with with some people that I'm going to be working on. I got some some new guests for the podcast lined up and all kinds of amazing stuff. So I want to let you know, uh, this is a little bit different than any other of the podcasts. So of 2015, there was some amazing, amazing podcasts and guests that I had on the podcast. And so what I did was compiled the top 10 interviews from 2015 based on downloads. So uh, the the top 10 from last year, I went into every single one of them and pulled out some really amazing nuggets of information from each of the interviews that I'm going to share with you today. So we're going to start at number 10 and then work our way all the way up to the number one, uh, the number one podcast of 2015. And so the number 10 one uh, was Antonio Sanchez. And this is a snippet of him talking about dealing with negativity and overcoming it. Uh, um, with his with his Golden Globe snub and all of the things that happened there. So uh, let's get into it right now with number 10, Antonio Sanchez. There was some controversy uh, that was going on. And I, it was sort of like running around on the on the Internet with the with the mm-hmm. soundtrack and, and things like that. Can you talk about what happened with that? Yeah, um, what happened is. You know, I. It is funny because the day the score got nominated for for the Golden Globe, we got a letter from the Academy uh, of Arts and Sciences, aka the Oscars, saying that we were ineligible because they thought there was more pre-recorded music than original music and it's supposed to be more than 50 percent original music versus the the uh, incidental music so that sounded really weird to us we did a recount and we came out winning by a lot mm-hmm. so we thought okay it's just just a technicality so we're just going to appeal it and then it's going to be fine so that's what we did and then they came back with another reason saying that uh, the original score was too diluted by the incidental music. So in the beginning it was a technicality, and then when the technicality the technicality was resolved, then they decided it was something else. So the whole thing was pretty sketchy to me. Wow. Uh, but to be honest, it I think it helped more than it hurt because 
one trend that I noticed in all the award uh, season circuit thing that I did, which, you know, was completely foreign to me, you know, as a jazz musician, you are in the least glamorous, you know, part of, of the music industry nowadays. Right. And all of a sudden I'm in Hollywood and red carpets and stuff. So it, it was like completely bizarre, a very bizarre experience. It was cool. Uh, but what I started noticing was that the score would get nominated a lot, but when it was time to actually award it, uh, it would, they were like, oh, yeah, it's really cool to nominate it because it's so different and, and so risky. But uh, I don't think we're going to actually award it. Let's award it to let's award the, the thing to, you know, the orchestral same status quo stuff that is right. always happening in Hollywood, you know, except for a couple. Uh, awards that 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 they actually gave me, but I noticed that was the trend. So I love the fact that you can take something like that and you say, you know what, this is a negative, but I'm going to look at the the positive side of things. And hey, man, you got to, you know, you got nominated, like you said, you went to Hollywood, you did all of that stuff too. Which, hey, to me is is a positive. So you got to look oh, at yeah. the, the no, positives and, and, out of that. And actually, you know, it was I think it's a blessing in disguise because I don't think the score would have won even if it would have gotten nominated for the right. Oscars. But the controversy just completely catapulted it to a uh, different category. Right. So more people were talking about it because it got disqualified than probably they would have talked about because it would have gotten nominated. All right. So there you have it. Antonio Sanchez talking about all the stuff that happened, you know, all the, with the uh, with the Golden Globes and, and all that stuff. Really interesting insight from him. Now, number nine is Gary Chafee, and he's talking about rhythm, meter and, and playing uh, within a musical setting. And who else to talk about that than the one and only Gary Chafee? So let's listen to this snippet from number nine from Gary Chafee. I've always felt that rhythm is a drummer's turf. Mm -hmm. You may not know chord scales, and you may not know drop twos, and you may not know any of that stuff, but you definitely should be an authority on rhythm and meter. Those two things you should be really strong in. So if a guy comes in with a tune in 5-4, it shouldn't scare you. You Mm -hmm. should already know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. And Vinny plays a lot of that stuff with Sting. Absolutely. You know, and Sting's pop, but Vinny just had, I mean, Vinny's Vinny and he, you know, he sounds amazing. uh, But he, but like you said, he has complete control over it. So I think that, I guess that maybe people start to learn this stuff a little bit. And like many other things, they say, oh, I got it all figured out. And then they go out and pull it out on a gig. And it just sounds like it doesn't sound musical. And I know that that's, that's not the point of it. And that's what you, that's what you're trying to express too, that, that, right. you know, you don't want to just hammer out these crazy stickings just because you worked on it in the practice room and it sounds cool. Right. I mean, that thing that Vinny did on the seven tune of Stings, I forget what the name of the tune is. Uh, Love is Stronger Than Justice. It could be. I or wouldn't know. Seven Days but, or something. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is that that's one of the first things, that's one of the first devices that anybody that goes into those areas learns. That's a way of phrasing an odd meter and making it sound even. Mm-hmm. It's a simple device. and But it sounded great on the tune. It didn't get in the way of the tune. It actually, it's something that a lot of people felt made the tune sound really well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, 
um, Joe Morella did the same thing on take five where it, it feels like it's in four. Right. You know, and, but you, and you, the first time you ever try to play along with it and, and think it's in four, <laughs> you're into a rude awakening, but. <laughs> yeah. You would be surprised how many guys are really well versed in the rhythm, the rhythm and meter thing. They just, uh, it, the opportunities to express it in the particular music that they're playing in may not be that great. So they have to really pick their spots. You don't want to overdo it. Sure. It's just one, one device amongst many. Mm-hmm. If you never played an unusual rhythm in your entire career, it wouldn't make any difference. No one's going to dish you because you didn't do that. It's just like uh, another thing that you have in your arsenal. If you have it, you'll use it. Hopefully you'll use it with taste. That is some solid, solid advice from the well-known Gary Chafee. Now, number eight is coincidentally Nathaniel Townsley, who I recorded that interview in the same exact room that I'm in now in Florida. Uh, so this is Nathaniel Townsley talking about really just about how to groove and, and you know, ways that you can think about grooving and things like that. So this is a number eight, Nathaniel Townsley. We were talking about the chops and groove thing. So let's let's role play a little bit here. Let's say I sit down with you one day and I have all these ridiculous chops and mm-hmm. and you're like, all right, now play a groove and I'm not really grooving that well. What 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 would your be what would your advice be for me or, or how would you steer me in a different direction other than just suggesting uh some different tunes to listen to? What I would do is I would probably put on a James Brown song or a Steely Dan song, and I would say just play the song. Just play it straight. Mm-hmm. Listen to the song, understand the arrangement, and then just play it because there's no room for all of that. You right. know, you have to put music to where all the elements are there where all that's necessary is for you just to play the groove. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that's what happens today is music is so there are less and less categories than what we grew up with. You know, music is so everything is so meshed together. There's there's this underlying fusion and everything now. Mm -hmm. So the music today just leaves that space for somebody to fill. The music today just has that kind of space. Right. Um, when we grew up, everybody, there were parts. Everybody had to play certain parts. And all those parts made sense together. Mm-hmm. And if you were out of that part, then it didn't make sense. Right. Each part was a, was a part of the foundation of the groove. You know, so when you listen to James Brown and when you listen to songs like from Steely Dan or... Uh, you know, anything like that, you know, there's, you know, now you have to play a part, you know, and your part is the groove. Right. And I would just, you know, I would just have you sit down and just play that. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and really 
you know, it, I think that a part of the breakdown is that understanding the understanding the form of the tune, understanding who's playing what, accompanying other people rather than stepping on their toes, getting out of their way, um, you know, and really just supporting everybody else in the band or in the room to to make sure that the music is breathing and has has life to it rather than you know forcing everything. Well, that's also yeah, that's true, and it's also just understand. I, I don't think. Um, a lot of guys today are taught to understand arrangement. Mm -hmm. They understand spaces that supposed to be filled, but they don't understand the actual arrangement of the song. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's what's missing because again, when you go on YouTube, you know, you get to, you get to see whatever you want to see. If you want to, you there's a version of the song, and then there's a version with just a solo. Right. So, if all you want is the solo, you don't have to listen to the song to get to the solo anymore. And it's not going to make any sense to the solo, and it's not going to make any sense. So, you know, we just they're just not brought up that way, and that's right. not that's not their fault. That's why you know it's not their fault how times have changed. Right. You know, so that's why I don't believe in saying, okay, you're wrong for playing this way. You're wrong for doing it this way. Mm -hmm. And it, it, all I can do is share with them and say, well, that's cool. Instead of going straight to the song, listen to the whole song. Right. How it all makes sense. All right, now we're getting down there. Let's. Uh, this is number seven, and this is Benny Greb's interview, which is a really great interview. We talk about the art and science of Groove, his DVD, and and how he really um, how he approaches all that kind of stuff. But one of the great things that he talks about is staying motivated and seeing your progress. And that's what that's the snippet that I pulled out of this interview. This is from session one hundred eight. So this is number seven with Benny Greb. I know that I get this question all the time. I'm sure you get this all the time too. It's all right. There's all this information. Now yeah. How do I, how do I practice it? How do I, right. how do I start to apply this stuff? And you have a lot of practice techniques in the DVD. Um, but how do you suggest that people structured the practice? Not what to practice, but how to practice it. Yeah. Uh, I'm a maniac regarding that stuff. Um, I have a whole drum camp about this, like practicing efficiency and stuff. Right, and you uh, talked a lot about it uh, in the other in the other interview that we did. So if anybody yeah. wants to check that out, uh, they can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session fifty two. So um, so you really go into detail about that, but specifically with this stuff, um, I did. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, but, yeah. No, no, no. Fine. Um, I think with that DVD, I would say watch it through. Just. Mm -hmm once if you want and um and, and then pick out like two or three things that you will work on for the next couple of weeks right and the most important thing with this kind of stuff is uh that you make before and after recordings mm -hmm. because this is stuff that uh, you might fool yourself in both directions sure uh you might think like oh this is already great <laughs> and then it's not or you might think like oh they're Nothing has changed. This is stupid, right. right? And then you, but then if you can listen to, okay, I'll play just the groove. Then I do this breathing exercise, for example, for a while, or I think of something for a while, or I I start the groove with this uh, air drumming thing, 
and then you record it again and then you can compare like the recording from half an hour ago and from now and i think you will be quite amazed like what happens with that stuff and, right and the thing is like with always if you spread your powers <laughs> and too thin right uh, over too many um uh subjects you will make progress but it's sometimes uh, you can't measure it right and this right. is basically what lets motivation go away because motivation is always the why mm -hmm. when you get up in the morning and you get your running shoes on and you think like you know what i should better like have breakfast now i don't want to i don't want to go for a run right you, right you then basically ask like why should i now go mm -hmm. for a run and but if you have the why constantly if you show yourself your progress constantly discipline becomes obsolete Right. If you really have a good system that will reliably always prove to you change that you make, and not only change because change is automatic, but progress is not. Right. And and like your progress, um, then it's like okay. And and a way to do that is to really measure it before mm -hmm. and after, and to focus on like. Three, I think three is a magic number for that. Like sure. three subjects. If you have an hour, mm -hmm. 15 minutes, one thing, five minutes rest, 15 minutes, the other thing, five minutes rest, 15 minutes, the third thing. And, um, and then you can really see like stuff, like that stuff happens. And right. you do it by um, turning off your mobile phone. And, and it, I often get asked like, is is like is the is the iPhone is is it a great practicing tool? And I always say yes. If you turn it off. All right. I hope you got some out of that. And number six is this is one of uh, the most. I want to say unique interviews that I did with JP because I think that JP and I had a had a great um, idealistic way of looking at how our careers have shaped us and how we've sort of designed a life that we wanted. So this is number seven, and this is from session 130 with JP Bouvet. And he talks about being a doist, uh, basically, and shaping your life the way that you want it to go. And, and he'll explain what he means by a doist in this snippet. So this is a snippet from session 130 with JP Bouvet. So a last, one lasting piece of advice that you would give for, for drummers who are listening to this that are coming up. In terms, just in general, in life, or sure, any, anything you want. Wow, big question. You know the what it is. Floor is yours. Um, I preach. I don't preach. I mean, let's be real. I do preach sometimes, but um, one idea that is reoccurring in my uh, in my in my teaching and my preaching and my speaking is the whole idea of being a doist, mm -hmm. and. I really do think that that is the most important part of like, not only if you're a drummer and it's your career, but really your life, you know, when you're, especially when you're going through high school, going through university, and then that period after where you're trying to figure out where you fit in in the world. I feel like being a doist is the best thing. And being a doist is like, it's a two phase thing. And the first phase is a combination of two things. One, putting yourself in the best place to succeed. 
wherever that is. For me, that was Berklee College of Music. For other people, it's just moving to a different city. For other people, it's just simply leaving home. It could be anything, but it's like, you don't want to ask what if, you know, like, how shit would it be every day if I woke up and I was like, man, if only I was in Boston, if only I was at New York, you know, it's like, yeah. that's a horrible feeling. So put yourself in the place where you can't have that excuse because then it ends up being your fault every time. Yep. And that's, that's a lot of responsibility. Then you'll do the work. So the first thing in phase one, put yourself in the best place to succeed. Part two in phase one is be the guy that makes it happen because every group needs a duist to lead them. Every band has a leader. There is no exception. Someone needs to book the rehearsal. Someone needs to be like, hey guys, that actually sounded really bad. Why don't we just do the pre-chorus a couple times more? Mm -hmm. Like someone needs to just be that person that's saying, okay, we have the idea, let's try it. You know, like, and this is like what I call reckless doing <laughs> because you take every opportunity you can get. You never know who you're going to meet. You never go, you never know what you're going to learn. You never know what you're going to learn you don't like. You never know what you're going to learn you do like. So this first phase of doing is aggressive doing. And that was basically my time in high school and, and Berkeley and like a little bit after. And it was like, I, I was probably for my, in my three years in Boston, I was probably in like 12 bands. Mm -hmm. And now one of those has lasted, but it's very important to me. And through all that mayhem, I met my best friends. I learned how to play with a ton of different groups and different styles. You know, I learned a ton from it. So the phase of aggressive doing was absolutely essential for me to enter phase two, which is kind of like what I'm entering now, which is like, okay, it's time to stop doing everything and choose and do it smartly. So now I'm kind of like, okay, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. And it's like when you grow up and you come to terms with like, okay, I don't want to be the cat everyone calls for sub gigs on wedding gigs. You know, I don't right. want to do that. I don't want to play cover gigs. I don't want to play jazz. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. So it's like, over time you start to be like, okay, now I'm to the point where I've done a ton of doing and now it's time for me to be smart and choose how I proceed and proceed smartly, make a plan, make a long-term plan, think about budget, you know, like that's where you get into a lot of adulty things, but I honestly don't think you have to do that till you become kind of an adult. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the other thing that one of the things that sticks with me most in my life that I read in Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. Yep. It's a great it book. Is, yeah. And the biggest thing that young people should remember is that you don't, he says this, you don't become a musician when you start getting paid. I'm sorry, you don't become a professional when you start getting paid. That's what a lot of people say. Oh, you're professional when you make a living from it. But that's bullshit. You become a professional when you start acting like a professional. Right. Right. That means you show up to work because we're in a we're in a, uh, a career where there is no job. There are no hours. So you don't want to have a nine to five job because you want to be an artist, but you don't want to work eight hours a day. It's never going to work. And in fact, it's harder to make a living. So it shouldn't be 10 to 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you have to show up to work and put the time in whatever that means for like whatever you're doing. Um, but I really feel like if someone's like really trying for eight hours a day, to like make themselves that thing, whether it's a painter or a musician or a, I don't know, a festival owner or whatever it is. If you're trying for eight, 10 hours a day and you're actually sitting there trying, I would be willing to bet that you will figure it out. You know, 
No, the reason most people don't figure it out is because they just tread water and they spend their whole life. Remember the analogy about swimming and then coming up for air and reassessing? They spend their whole life reassessing or assessing because there's nothing to reassess. And they never actually put their head down and swim towards something. So that would be my biggest advice is be a doist. Be the person that makes it happen. And like if you think of it and you think that it is possible... It's like if you think of it, it's already possible. Because you're like, oh, cool, what if I did that? You know, you've really already subconsciously thought of all the ways that you could get there. Because if you couldn't think of the ways to get there, you wouldn't think of the idea in the first place. So it's kind of, that's, and it like can be, uh, it can turn cheesy to be like, you know, what are your dreams? And do them. Start doing them now. But really, that's the biggest thing is to be like, okay, I'm going to start now. Right. I, dude, I don't think that's cheesy at all, man. That's like you mentioned preaching. That's one of the things I preach. It's like, man, there is no reason for you to be doing shit that you hate. Yeah. You know, it's like if you're thinking about the fact that you don't want to do shit that you hate, then you're the type of person that's smart enough to figure out how to not do shit you hate. Right. <laughs> like you just have to put the time in. Like life is like a big version of drumming. And the more time you spend thinking about how to get good at drumming, the better you get at drumming. The more time you spend thinking about how to get better at life and trying new things and experimenting in different domains and trying this and trying that, the better you get at living life and kind of shaping life into what you want it to be, which Mm -hmm. for everyone is different. But for me is, um, you know, for me, that means that I have enough control. Right. I can kind of shape things how I want. I have time with my friends. I have creative output and I have loved ones nearby. Mm -hmm. Totally 100% agree with you. This session is brought to you by DW Drums. And as you know, I've been playing DW for years, not only because they make great handcrafted drums, but also because they support and foster drumming initiatives all over the world. For more information about DW, please visit them at dwdrums.com. This session is also brought to you by Dream Symbols, and Dream has a very, very simple approach. They want to make the highest quality symbols at the lowest price possible. That's especially true with their new Ignition Pack, which is designed for the professional, but priced at a price way lower than their competition. And this pack truly inspires you to start your engines. Be sure to check them out today at dreamsymbols.com. All right, here we are with number five, and this is from session 110. This is John Riley talking, and he talks about playing in time and why we don't always do it, and the reason behind it and and how we can fix that, which I think is really, really cool, and so I decided to pull that out of this, and this is the number five, or the fifth most downloaded podcast of 2015, session 110 with John Riley. So what is your, what's your advice and and approach to practicing? It's always a hot topic here on the podcast because the listeners are always want to know how, how can I, how can I practice better? What's, what's the best way to practice? And, you know, I don't think there's a a surefire answer, but I always like to hear everyone's approach and opinions on practicing. Well, I think we practice skills and we try and apply that to music. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I guess playing in time is the most important thing. And so then you have to ask yourself, why 
don't we play in time? Right. And I think there's two, two main reasons. One is that we have a coordination issue or we have a concentration issue. If you, if you playing something that you have control over and you're concentrating, it should be in time. Mm -hmm. So I'm always looking for things that challenge my coordination and my concentration to, to get more command of the instrument. And then, um, I like to play with recordings yeah, and see if I can access these new skills that, uh, that I'm cultivating, um, not really in the heat of battle, but closer to in the heat of battle, uh, than if I'm only concentrating on playing a particular exercise. As soon as I have to account for a bass player and form, um, part of my brain power is committed to that. So it makes it harder to, to play new ideas clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I talk about, I think there's, there's a, a lot of people sound great in the practice room. Yeah. And, but then they can't access any of that stuff when they play with people. Right. I was going to say, so, I sound fantastic in the, in the practice room. Some days I do too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think there's a gulf between the stage and the practice room. Right. And you need to create a halfway house. Mm -hmm. And for me, the halfway house is playing with records playing with recordings. So let's say I'm working on a particular new phrase. First, I just work on the phrase and don't even think about four, four or four measure phrases or anything like that. I just try and get a flow on this, this idea that this new idea that occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Then I try and put it into a context of, of a pulse. Mm -hmm. And then I try and put it into a context of, four measures. When I can do that comfortably, then I'll put on a recording and force myself to play that new phrase every chance I can with the recording. Right. Just, just to see if I can do it while I have to acknowledge um, this other information that's coming in my ears. Mm -hmm. When I can do that, the next step is to put on another recording and see if something in that recording will trigger me to play the new phrase. Oh, that's and so then, so then once that happens, I'm much closer to being able to access it when I'm playing with people. All right, we're getting down there to number four, and this is session 95 with John Blackwell. This is by far the longest interview that I did of 2015. This was almost two hours long. This is session 95, and John talks about chops and technical still, skill, but making sure that you're playing musically with all of those chops and technical skill. So this nugget is really, really great, and I hope you enjoy it. So here's John Blackwell from number 95. And, and I'm not saying not to study 
chops. You, you know, get all the chops you can. Just reach for the sky. You know, right? You know, see how far you can can go with your, your technical skills, and see how fast you can go to warp five speed around the kit. Right. But just don't. I've seen I've seen drummers play over the singer, and I'm just like, and I'm not saying no names. And I'm just like, why? Why are you doing that? You right. Know? Right. And, you know, it's I heard Daniel Glass told me this a long time ago. He said, man, do you want to be the you know, do you if you're doing 65 miles an hour, do you want to be in the Ferrari where you have a bunch of headroom or in the Pinto that you got the pedal all the way to the floor and that's as fast as you can possibly go? So I agree that you want those chops. You want that headroom. You want to be able to express yourself any way that any way that you want to, um, and I think that that's where the the technical ability and the chops really um, can help you define your sound. But at the same time, like to echo what you're saying is that you don't want to just be chopping around the kit the whole entire time and you know stepping on everybody else's toes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can understand. You know, you know, you don't want to just be a timekeeper. You mm-hmm. know, just every everyone has something to say, and and back in the back in the days, the drummer never got a chance to do that until they started taking a rebellious um, stand to to come to the front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Art Blakey is a great example of somebody who said, "All right, we're gonna take the drums from back there, being a timekeeper. We're gonna bring them to the front." Right, you know, because we got something to say too. Mm-hmm. But he knew when and when not to. Mm-hmm. That's that's the subject, you know, when and when not to. Right, those right. are the key words that that young drummers should pay attention to today. Right, and maybe maybe they wouldn't have this uh, uh, reputation of somebody just chopping, just to chop and say, "Hey, look at me." Right. Hey, Look, Ma, no hands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll be the first one to admit it that years ago, I remember watching uh, a clip on YouTube uh, or no, it wasn't on YouTube. It was on uh, it was like a it was a VHS of the Steve Jordan DVD or VHS tape. The groove is here and he's playing these grooves. And I was like, eh, it doesn't really do anything for me. I don't really get it. You know, and I remember seeing like other drum videos of people freaking out around the kit and i was like yeah that's what i want to do and now it's the complete opposite i could sit there i just all i want to do is just watch steve jordan and watch you know uh, steve gad and and all those guys i get so much more satisfaction out of hearing these really really thick simple grooves than i do somebody just like you know but but and, and and i'm glad you said that because I I had the same situation where all I wanted to do was just try to figure out how fast I could play mm-hmm. and how fast I can do this or do that. And then one day I was jamming with uh when when I was jamming with you know one one day jamming with Prince or uh a matter of fact I could even go further back with you know when when I was with Cameo. You know, where I, I had never had a solo in that show. Mm-hmm. 
no solos were allowed in the show with Cameo. Larry Blackman, the leader of Cameo, who, who, who is a drummer, or one of the best drummers I've ever seen in my time, um, you know, he said a solo, and I read this in Modern Drummer, you know, way before I even got with Cameo, you know, mm-hmm. Larry said a drum solo to him sounds like a bunch of bunch of rocks rolling down a hill. All right, number three is Mark Juliana. So, Mark, this is from session 97, and Mark talks a lot about practicing, over-practicing, and different practice routines, which is always a really hot topic for the podcast. So I wanted to make sure that I pulled this nugget out. And so this is Mark Juliana talking about practicing, over-practicing, and practice routines from session 97, and this is the third most downloaded podcast of 2015. Now you had mentioned about practicing and and over practicing and and it not being true to the to the moment when it comes out in your playing sometimes. So what's a what's a typical practice routine look like for you? Because I get a lot of people that ask, you know, when you're interviewing these people, I, we want to know what they practice and how they practice. More importantly, uh, so what's your approach to practicing? It's it's really boring because <laughs> I found that um, you know the more I can make my practicing feel like practicing, the less likely I will um, be tempted to use the stuff I'm practicing in the music in its original form. Because it's, meaning um, I'm, I'm working on things in a really dry, basic fashion. Mm-hmm. So um, I wouldn't dare, I hope I wouldn't dare, you know, play a slow double stroke roll uh, on the snare drum for eight minutes on a gig, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and those are, so I'm, I'm really trying to target specific things. Um, just, you know, checking in on my, on my technique, making sure my sound is, is in a nice place and just being relaxed and, and really just like reaffirming my relationship with the drums every time I sit down mm-hmm. and some days feel better than others. And, and, um, you know, it's really always working on time. You know, I like to, <clears throat> I found the thing that, that keeps me on my toes the most is, um, you know, working on changing the subdivision or changing rates within a given tempo. So, um, you know, to just set the metronome at something slow, you know, 60 ish and, and just play eighth notes and then move to triplets and move to 16th notes and move back to triplets, really relaxed and patient and, um, really try to play them in a precise way. Um, just to, again, you know, build a relationship with how each one should feel. And, um, you know, I found like you were talking about the, the reward of results. I mean, when I started practicing like this, it's like, I started feeling it really deeply. I I think, um, you know, the steps that I was taking, um, with this kind of practicing, they were smaller steps, but I think they were irreversible. Meaning like once you take that step forward, you're there, that's your new home base. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it can't be unlearned. So I think sometimes when I was younger, I'd be practicing really sophisticated things and, and, uh, you know, a little, a little kind of, um, maybe it not so focused, you know, so maybe I'm working on, you know, playing over a certain vamp in 11, eight, just, just for fun, you know, and I work out some stuff over it and cool. And then, you know, six months later, that stuff has disappeared, right? you know? So this step that I seemingly took six months ago, I'm, I'm kind of back to where I was because it's, it's not stuff that a was, was maybe, um, applicable to, to the music I was playing or I didn't really grab it in that moment. It was more, you know, the, I had the perception that I, that I kind of nailed the stuff, but it was really just like a surface level. So, Mm -hmm. you know, practicing these more basic things, I found that like, they're a little more difficult to earn these, these steps, but, but when you take those steps, they're, they're really like really rooted. Right. All right, number two is my man Calvin Rogers, and this is from session 90 of the podcast. And he talks about failure and how to deal with it. And he had some things happen to him when he was pretty young, actually, and, and took a really mature approach at, uh, at dealing with it and overcoming it. So definitely some great words of wisdom here from Calvin Rogers. And this is number two from session 90 of the podcast. Here we go. And there's something that I really want to pull out of that is the fact that two things that you mentioned. One, you said, you know, there was the the first recording and it was a complete disaster. Yeah. And two, that you got this MD job and you had no idea what you're doing. You didn't you, you were like, I don't even know where to start. But the yeah. fact is that you recovered one from that failure where you had the complete disaster. And two, with the MD job is that you you figured it out. And the, the main thing is that you you tried and. Yeah. You know, that's a message that I always try to convey through the podcast and on the website is that, you know, I didn't know how to do a podcast before I started doing this or there's a, you know, like I didn't 10, 15 years ago, I didn't know what I was doing in the music business. But if you, you know, you gotta, you gotta at least try and fail if you, if you ever want to succeed, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and that's why, um, and, and to speak on, and when we talk about the Ricky Dillard record in that first album, uh, the thing that probably, was the most important thing is that I probably I I don't even know if I had a clue that I was making such a mess of this live record Uh, you didn't know what you didn't know I didn't I didn't didn't know what I didn't know right you know because I was just a kid that grew up in church and loved playing drums I loved it so much and you know and you know and, and in church Unfortunately, you know, we kind of we learn things backwards. We learn all of the most complicated things first. Right. And then, you know, and then we and then we have to get instructions on how to on the basics, on the fundamentals. So, mm-hmm. you know, we learn the tricks and the and the and the, and, the, and, the, and the, all of the fancy stuff. We learn all of that first and then, you know, someone has to come back and teach us how to play to a click track or how to play basic two and four pocket. Right. So, I don't think that I knew. I, I didn't even know that I was making a mess of this record. But one of the producers came over to me midways through the record, and he just said, "He said, man, he said you're going to make a complete fit, a mess of your career 
if you don't clean yourself up on this record. Hmm. I think I maybe had three songs left. And uh, he said, man, he said, whatever's left of this record that you have to play, just play the songs and that's it. Right. Just play the songs and that's it. And so uh, he didn't have to do that. That guy didn't have to do that. His name is Ernie Allen. He was he wrote the title track for that record that I played on, which was Ricky Dillard, Hallelujah, live in Chicago. And he didn't have to do that. He came over to me and he said that to me. And I, 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 I went and played the last few songs and was done. And then uh, I just started... I just started researching. I just started studying recording drummers. I started looking at credits and seeing, look, looking at credits and finding the drummers whose names I, I saw the most on mm-hmm. albums. And then I started studying them and I started picking up their trades. And then that's really kind of when I got, I was already into Joel Smith, but and he's a drummer that is famous for working with the Hawkins family, Walter and Edwin Hawkins. Mm -hmm. Edwin Hawkins is the writer of Oh Happy Day. And Walter Hawkins is his brother, and they're a famous, famous family. Joel Smith is their nephew. He's a famous bass player and drummer. He's Mm -hmm. absolutely probably the most influential bass player in gospel music, and arguably the most influential drummer in gospel music. I know that, I don't know, I can't think of another drummer who's probably influenced more drummers directly and indirectly. Um, But I started listening to him a lot. I started listening to a lot of, and I broadened my horizons to past gospel music. I started listening to Ricky Lawson. That was right around the time I remember, I remember going to Guitar Center and seeing this big poster of Ricky Lawson playing with Michael Jackson. He had the Mm -hmm. Ricky Remo sign and, uh, the Ricky Remo bass drum head. And I remember starting to find stuff that he was playing on. I started looking for him and there was no internet. So I, I had to do a lot of researching, you know? Yeah. And uh, I just started looking for, just started looking for stuff. And I don't really know how, when I think about that now, I was like, how did you research things with, with no, with no Google? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I just, I would just start going through albums and I just start looking for them. And I, I'd probably read the drum magazines, uh, and they would list albums that these guys were playing on. And I would go get them. I would take my church check and I made $35 a week at a church. And I would take that money and go to Sam Goody. Mm-hmm. And buy tapes and CDs that I see I would see in the drum magazines, and I started listening to Dave Wacko and Vinnie Kaliuta, uh, and and Gad, and 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 uh, I also started uh, a Terry Baker, who's a, a a drummer that's from Kentucky but plays a lot of gospel records. I started studying him. I started studying uh, a lot, just a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Ab- Abraham Laborio was another guy. Yeah. Um, Bill Maxwell is another guy that I studied. And then, you know, a lot of, just a lot of guys that were, you know, doing that. And that's what, and that's how I, and I just grew into that. I just started taking notes and just grew into this thing, you know, and the, and the next Ricky Dillard record that came around, you'll see between those two records and every record from, from a certain point, from maybe from 1993 to, you know, 2000. 2005 there was somewhat of a you know i don't want to talk about myself in the third person but there was somewhat of an evolution of calvin rogers because you could see the growth and you could see you know where the changes were happening you could hear them you know and it was just for me studying just 
you know, for me going from, you know, taking that moment and saying, you know, okay, I, man, I failed this recording. I, I've, I've done it a disservice, but I can make a choice. I could, I could say, man, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to continue doing what I do right. because I'm 13 years old and I'm, or I'm 14 years old. I'm the youngest guy here. and People are smiling in my face and telling me how wonderful I am. And I'm just a kid or I can make an adult decision and say, hey, I'm going to make myself better. And that's what I did. Um, you know, and those are things that, again, I think it's great that one of the things that you bring out is, you know, making strides, even when you, you know, take taking strides and taking chances and music, you know, failures are something people you don't you don't hear people talk about a lot. People right. talk about it when you, you know, when when you get one on one access with them. But it's not right. so often that people in broad settings talk about their failure. And number one is session 89, Ed Sof. And this is by far the most downloaded podcast of 2015. I mean, he blew everyone out of the water. Uh, this is just an amazing interview. Uh, Ed's, Ed's reputation speaks for itself, but I don't know if you have listened to this whole thing or not, but I strongly encourage you to go back and check out Ed's interview. Like I, like I said, session 89 of the podcast. And he talks about staying on the same the same idea of practice. He talks about things to practice and approaches to practice. And coming from Ed Sof, when he talks about practice, uh, I think he's the guy you want to listen to. So without further ado, the number one most downloaded podcast of 2015. Here's a snippet from it with Ed Sof. So I want to touch on a couple of things that you had mentioned. Um, the the one thing when we were talking about practice and you know how people don't want to practice and the one thing that I've realized is that people because there is the internet because you have YouTube and and you can watch all of this music it kind of gives you this overwhelmed feeling where you're saying wow I don't yeah. know anything where do I start and so many people I get emails every single day saying Nick uh -huh. what should I practice what should I practice and I always think about you know, you don't know what you don't know and you don't know that you don't know it. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so I would, I, I'll pose that question to you. Um, how do you, how do you sort of evaluate your playing and, and look inside and, and realize, you know, A, what's important to be practicing and B, where you're falling short? Well, there's, I practice in two general categories. I practice technically and I practice musically. The technical practice at my age is basically maintaining what I already have and pushing what, towards what I don't have. And these are very simple categories. Uh, I practice in regards to musical, uh, what would you say, musical attributes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I still work on playing softly, but, within, but with intensity. All right, which is a real challenge on this instrument. Mm -hmm. I still work on opening up my loud end more. I practice time every day. I practice. I have exercises where I practice grooves and and improv improvisations at quarter note equals forty. First time I tried that. I felt like a beginner. Everybody <laughs> does, you know, and that's it's 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 not because it's hard. It's a humbling it's, experience, though. Yeah, and it's not because it's difficult. It's just because you've never done it before. Right. 
And after a couple of weeks of that, you sit down, put the old clicker on 40, and man, yeah, baby, I'm ready to go. Mm -hmm. Here we go. And then on the opposite side, I have a, a rule. I need to be, be, be able to play time between assuming that the, the style will accommodate the, the various tempo range ranges from 40 up to 400. So I'll practice, say, playing bebop time at uh, 400. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I can do that, and if I have dynamic control of that, that when music making time comes, I don't have to sit there and think, oh, God, I hope they don't call off something really fast. Right, right. Or, God forbid, if they call off something really slow. And kids don't realize this. It's something that basic is, is so intrinsically important to their to their musical development, whether they're improvisers or beat players or whatever the hell they are. Right. That's the first thing is time. I practice everything with a metronome, everything, because uh, I'm smart in that respect. That's the one place where I'm really smart because bottom line comes, people are going to want to play with you, not because you got 10 zillion drums or whatever. It's because you can lay it down, baby. Right. You make it feel good. So uh, that sort of takes the form of... uh, of the technical end, taking books like Stick Control or Gary Chafee's books, linear books, incredible. Man, you can do, they're wide open. You can do whatever you want. It's all up to your imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like with Alan Dawson had his million and one ways of playing Ted Reed's syncopation. Linear books are the best thing in the world because you take those linear rhythms and stickings and you can just go to town figuring out different ways to use them on the kit. Yeah. So. That's that's part of the of the technical practice as well. Then the musical practicing is as strange as it sounds. I play tunes because my my one of my concepts of playing the instrument is that I find it a real challenge to play with the same flow and melodic contours and dynamic nuances as a horn player can have, mm-hmm. or as a pianist can have. And I've sort of been been stereotyped as is way this business is is quote a jazz player unquote right so most of the gigs that i play are quote jazz unquote gigs and mm-hmm. and so i'm constantly working on repertoire and i have students who who are who are working on pop and funk grooves and they are listening to repertoire and working on it too so the the musical part in, in, is both both uh, improvisational and stylistic, and as well, of course, been playing a tune. As I mentioned earlier, what would happen if somebody asked me to play this tune as a samba in five four? Mm-hmm. I mean, man, you're practicing. If you practice imaginatively, you'll play imaginatively. Right. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to overplay. You know, you're a pro, but it means that you're going to have a pocket full of things that you can draw on. So somebody says, I want this. And you go, yeah, baby. Okay. I'm, I'm sort of hip to that. And away mm-hmm. you go. So practicing, you want to practice the way you want to play. And if you practice mindlessly, if you practice without listening to yourself, if you practice, uh, without musical intent, that's how you're going to play. It's that simple. The other aspect of practicing is practicing away from the drums. And this if a person already has a good technical background is probably take 
starts to take precedence in their practice period in that they sit down and they listen to a cut or they listen to an album mm-hmm. and they listen and listen and listen and listen until they start to hear why that album sounds so good. Why does Elvin Jones sound so good? What's the relationship between Elvin and McCoy Tyner? What's the relationship between Elvin and Jimmy Garrison? What's the relationship? What's going on between John Coltrane and Elvin Jones? What's going on between Jimmy Cobb or Tony Williams and Miles? I mean, you can take these iconic jazz groups, just as you can take iconic funk groups, James Brown rhythm sections. Mm-hmm. Wow, what's Clyde Stubblefield doing here with Jerry Jamat? That's where the real rubber hits the road, is you start to listen and you start to really sharpen your perception skills to where you start to hear connections. You hear the interplay. And the point of this is, is that if you develop this skill in listening to a recording, then you transfer that to when you become a listener in the group that you're playing in. Right. Because that is the greatest skill of all. The best players are the best listeners. It's mm-hmm. that simple. Mm-hmm. So that is, I should obviously add that third category to technical practice, musical practicing, and then creative listening. All right, so there you have it, the top 10 interviews of 2015. I hope you got some great, great knowledge out of all of those snippets. And I urge you to go back and listen to all of them because they are just chock full of of information. But I wanted to pull out some really key parts of them that I thought would serve you really well in a a more micro-sized way. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource. On Instagram at drummers resource. I'm on Twitter and on Snapchat at drummers drummers are source and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace